Welcome to the Wildlife Guardians podcast on All About Animals Radio. We are a show dedicated to the advocacy of wildlife everywhere with a focus on lesser known endangered species. Hi, I'm Erica Salvamini and Jeff Harrison and I are honored to be your hosts representing All About Animals Radio, a platform dedicated to animals and all those who act to protect and advocate for them. We hope you enjoy this episode and share our podcast with all of your animal loving friends. And now on to the show. Today, we welcome Dr. James Danoferg. James is an educator, conservation strategist, and biodiversity scientist focused on the human dimensions of conservation. For the past 25 years, he has helped document and then reduce the negative effects of human activities on biodiversity in 36 countries through community-based conservation interventions. Dana Ferg is the Director of Conservation at the Living Desert Zoo and Gardens in Palm Desert. He received his BA from the University of Michigan and master's and PhD in biology from the University of Kansas and is a two-time Fulbright specialist honoree advising the Applied Environmental Research Foundation in India and with the Southern African Wildlife College in South Africa. Welcome. Thank you, Erica. James, it's such an honor and a pleasure to have you on with us today to discuss your vital work in wildlife conservation. Can you please tell us a little bit about how you got started with your work at the Living Desert Zoo and Gardens? Sure. Uh, And Jeff and Erica, thank you both for having me on uh, here to talk today. It's a pleasure to get to speak with you both uh, here. Um, At the the Living Desert, we we have a a 52-year history now of desert conservation. It's been the major focus of the work that we do here. Um, When I started a little over five years ago, our focus uh, was somewhat different than how uh, I and my team have refocused it with the whole zoo, uh, zoo support and involvement. So uh, historically, zoos have been very focused on breeding of species, um, breeding of endangered species, threatened, declining species. Uh, and that's less of what we do here now for release back out into the wild, right? Because uh, a lot of the reasons why, well, let me just take it back and take a bigger step all of the reasons why species are declining right now is because of our actions as humans, right? Mm-hmm. Us and our, and our co-species um, members. So we are, uh, we're creating an environment that makes it difficult for wildlife to be able to thrive. And much of the, the goal of the work that we do now here in uh, the, the living desert is very much focused on addressing what we call the human dimensions of conservation. Uh, And those human dimensions of conservation involve all of the things that we do, addressing all of the things that we do. So whether that's that's land use over exploitation of species, um, pollution, climate change, habitat development, all of these kinds of things. Um, We're trying to create a world where species and ecosystems and humans can all coexist and in ways that benefit everyone to the best of what we can do. So that's really what we're focused on now is that on uh, species and working with humans. That's, um, that's amazing. Um, thank you for, for being on and for sharing the, uh, the work that you're, that you're doing right now at the Living Desert and the, the span and depth of your work within the fields of conservation and education research is impressive and inspiring to say the least. Um, 
Can you tell our audience a bit about your role at the Living Desert and why this work is so important? Well, uh, you know, we all like to think that we do the most important things and address the most root causes and the greatest impacts. But you know we're 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 one of many who do these kinds of things. So uh, I don't I don't want to set up as set us up as being the paragon of something. But I, I do feel like we are in a, a particular sweet spot for our settings and our skill set and the opportunities that we have. So um, the the work that we do really focuses on on, a, on working with communities to mitigate the problems, the impacts that we're having or that they are having with the communities, the natural communities around them. So we work with the human communities to address and benefit the species communities, um, the natural communities. So uh, this, this is a pretty wide ranging bit of effort that we do that could range from digging latrines in coastal communities, if that's something that is necessary to preserve the reef biodiversity so that the fishers can have an income, um, to working with uh, uh, covering the trash of dumpsters at behind restaurants so that they're not providing food subsidies to ravens that are then major predators for all of the native wildlife, especially the endangered desert tortoise here, to working with, uh, with uh, farmers uh, or ranchers in southern Africa to provide them with um, cattle dogs that protect the cattle and goats and sheep, whatever they have against predators, natural predators, so, so as to reduce human wildlife conflict. And most of the work that we do really is focused on addressing human wildlife conflict in a larger context. Uh, James, I know a, a lot of, uh, in the past, a lot of people have had a particular view uh, when a name is connected with a zoo. Um, yeah. How do you normally respond to that if if somebody gets uh, kind of gets the the vibe of what you're doing and then they go oh, oh he's attached to to a zoo um, now while while many people can see the benefits of the zoos that are are working hard to preserve um, you know what what's your standard um, response to that when you when you kind of get that uh, people that are taken aback by that. That people are surprised that zoos are involved in conservation or yeah, that they're yeah. not supportive of zoos that are involved in conservation? Well, because I'll, I'll kind of run into both where I'll have people that'll go, oh, you were volunteering at a zoo. And then you try and tell them, you know, exactly what's happening there and, and the benefits of the work that's happening. Um, mm -hmm. And I think some people are surprised by that. And, and I think that the, the days of just assuming that all the animals are locked in a crate and uh, treated poorly um, yeah. are, are, are gone. But um, do, do you run into a lot of resistance with that or or do you see a, a change in mindset where people see it for the education benefits and mm -hmm. the conservation benefits? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Great question, Jeff, because we are based at a zoo. And so we are from the from the perspective of the public and certainly our supporters, we're, we're a zoo. We're also a botanical gardens and a museum. And as of COVID, an outdoor recreation facility <laughs> so that we could stay open during COVID. Um, uh, but uh, pe what people who are opposed to zoos may not know, or at least not know adequately, is that zoos have very frequently been at the forefront of conservation, field conservation. Um, not breeding animals on grounds necessarily for release, but being involved in working in communities and working to restore ecosystems and, you know, breeding some species for release back out into the wild, especially those that have plunged dangerously low, like the California condor and the Mexican wolf and the black-footed ferrets, all these species in North America, but it happens at zoos around the world. So zoos have long been, especially lately, 
conservation leaders. But for people who are opposed to zoos and, and maybe don't want to support a conservation organization that is a zoo, because I think we are a conservation organization that is a zoo, not a zoo that has conservation things in it, right? Um, uh, is that, um, you know, if people are basic, uh, have a very negative basic opinion of what zoos are, you know, I'd say, I, I agree. I don't think all zoos get a pass, right? Most zoos, sadly, in the United States, these are the numbers that I know best, there are around 2,500 or 2,200 zoos in North America. Only about 10% of those, 220, 230 of them, are in the Association for Zoos and Aquariums. And AZA, as it's known, is sort of the gold standard for animal care, for taking care of our, of our employees, for taking care of our visitors, providing safe spaces for doing conservation. Right. All of these are requirements that we all have to pass, have to meet, and ideally exceed um, the, uh, the requirements that are set by AZA. So zoos that are AZA, I think, don't get a pass, but they get a, a higher level of okay. Sure. And then you do your investigation, right? Zoos that are not AZA may still get a pass, but they require kind of an evaluation. So I am not pro-zoo. I am pro zoos that are conservation organizations and that are doing good things, right? Sure. So, and, and I think something that, that, uh, that we often, I don't know, overlook uh, is that an important part of conservation is getting the entire community to support conservation, right? Entire segments of communities, entire part of society to support conservation. So uh, doing the work, you know, restoring ecosystems or uh, working with the direct, um, groups who are affecting species is not enough. We have to create a groundswell of support for conservation so that everyone wants this, right? right. And that is what zoos as a visitor entity really do more effectively than anything else, more effective than any YouTube channel, television show, anything, you know, right. if, if you get out into a zoo and you have those personal one-on-one -on -one connections with nature, you're gonna wanna advocate for those species. Absolutely. You know? So I, I hope that's been your experience too, Jeff, is that once people experience the animals at a zoo, they think, oh, I want yeah. to work to protect these things. Yeah, yeah, and, and I've seen just that, where people will, will be in the moment in front of an animal that they've never been that close to. They'll feel a certain emotion about it and, and it'll pull them in. And many times that will send that person on a, on a different course uh, to where they will uh, do what they can and spread the word to, uh, to help these animals. Um, in a previous conversation that you and I had had, James, you had mentioned um, a, a pretty staggering number of, uh, a staggering statistic about how much of our wildlife has been lost over uh, the past 52, 53 plus years. Um, when, when I was hit in the face with that, it was, it's, uh, it's mind numbing. Um, so to say that uh, roughly 70% of, of our wildlife has been uh, lost just since I've been on this planet, since 1970, is, is gut-wrenching. Um, that's obviously why this is so important to, to get things rolling nowadays. What, what, what do you foresee as the best steps to take as the human population exceeds Eight billion, and if uh, you know, they, if nothing changes, um, you know, it's a very dire situation for the animals. What, what are the best steps to take today? 
Wow. Well, that's a great question. And sobering statistics there, Jeff. Absolutely. That, that I'd like to just emphasize, you know, that, that you correctly point out that 70% of wildlife, certainly mm. large charismatic wildlife, birds, mammals, um, reptiles, things that people can see regularly uh, have been lost in the last 50 years relative to what they were at the time. Um, you know, because of habitat loss, because of species spread, because of, of resource consumption on our part, because of unsustainable practices in the wild. Um, that's why we've, we've lost so much. There are, there are more domestic poultry than there are wild birds by biomass, right? Wow. There are more domestic mammals, cattle especially, than there are wild, animal, wild mammals in the world by biomass, again. You know, that's a sobering statistic because that, that's what they consume. That, that's reflecting right. what they consume from the planet, right? right? It has to be drawn out that other that wild species can't use. So, um, you know, to get to your, to your real question there about what can we all do? There are thousands of things that we can right. do on every moment of the day. You know, every decision that I make in a day is rooted in conservation. You know, I have to remember to turn the lights off when I leave. I don't let the water run. I walk or I bicycle to most places. Um, when I'm when I'm uh, working in a project or working on a thing, I unplug my laptop because that doesn't need to continually recharge if I can just go with the charge off the laptop. You know, I'm a I'm a vegetarian, uh, sometimes vegan. You know, I'm a wannabe vegan, I guess. Really, <laughs> you know, the lower we can eat on the food chain, the bigger impact we could make. You know, buy less, reuse more buy used, you know, I use, go to a used clothing store rather than buying new fast fashion that, that is just creating garbage that's filling the landfills and, and coating the world and then taking resources to make it, you know, just be more conscientious and mindful in our practices. Think about what you do and how it affects the world. You know, right. there's no end to things. Like I say, thousands of things, almost every second of the day that you're doing something, could have a con, con uh, implication for conservation. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So you you obviously have a lot of irons in the fire with a lot of different projects in a, in many different corners of the world. Mm -hmm. um, are there any that you are currently in the midst of that you would like to talk about? Oh, geez, or, are, or, or can talk about? <laughs> That's, that's a pretty open offer there, man. You should focus that one. Because <laughs> we'll never be done here. <laughs> you know, we're, we're involved in these projects in, in 12 countries around the world. We have around 60, 64 different projects that we're working on um, with, you know, 100 collaborators in, uh, in three different continents around the world uh, for a reason. Because there are, there are so many great opportunities and such great projects and amazing collaborators. Right. Um, you know, before I get into any of them in particular, uh, something that, that I think this this uh, video or this podcast video podcast um, is, highlights is that conservation is not a solo endeavor. Right. All of our work is done collaboratively. Right? right. If someone tells you I saved whatever species or I protected this thing, this mm -hmm. location, mm. They're taking credit for other people's work because right. we are, it's a team sport conservation and nothing gets done without all of us working together, including the public supporters of the conservation agents that are directly out there doing the work. Sure. So, um, you know, we, uh, you and I work together on a couple of projects, Jeff, the, uh, the Black Mambas anti-poaching unit is one that's particularly, particularly near and dear to my heart. Uh, and I think is one of the most inspiring 
projects too. You know, the 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 Black Mambas Anti Poaching Unit is a group of women in Southern Africa, South Africa, uh, that is directly close to, directly connected to Kruger National Park, one of the world's great national treasures. Uh, almost all of Africa's wildlife are found in huge numbers in Kruger National Park. Absolutely worth a visit. But they have a part of the greater Kruger National Park area, not the park itself, but immediately next to it, that they patrol and they protect. And they, uh, they work with, uh, work as a team and work with, with anti-poaching agents elsewhere as well to patrol on foot, unarmed, and all of them are women that are out nice. patrolling these this fence line in in this in this game reserve called Balule game reserve uh, that they have wherein they have reduced poaching by almost 90% and have kept it down for almost a decade now since they started and you know it's a it, it's an amazing process and they have done such great had had such great successes in terms of of reducing poaching of wildlife in the area but something that i think is inadequately um, evaluated or reviewed, which we've we've started doing over the last five years at the Living Desert, uh, is assessing their social impact. Right. Because they're also trying to build uh, love and support and appreciation for wildlife, for protected areas, for game reserves, and for conservation as an action among people in the area, um, even more than is already there. So uh, I, I'm, I'm assuming that um, that one of the uh... Well, I'm sure there's a, there's a big ripple effect from from their work. I mean, you, you've got someone that uh, is now empowered with a with a very important job, yeah. who will come home to their uh, come home to their family and their village and be able to, to talk about their work. But not only that, they're going to tell their children and their nieces and nephews the importance of these animals, how how much more important these animals are alive than dead, and and hopefully steer some people away from ever getting that get rich quick thought of, uh, you know, I'll go get you a rhino horn kind of thing. But so I, I know you've done some in-depth uh, interviews and, and, and digging into the statistics of, of those ripple effects. And it, it seems like if this is something that you could scale up mm -hmm. um, as, I mean, as massive as uh, the grounds are over there that need to be protected, but if, the, if it can continue to scale up, it's obviously a, a model that should be scaled, but uh, how far? I mean, it's it's going all the way down into into the schools with their um, yeah. with their bush babies programs and, and all of that. Um, do you do you see that? Uh, do you see them growing in size quickly or not fast mm -hmm. enough? Or how how? Yeah. Can they, what, what does that look like? Can that be replicated in other countries and other continents? Frankly, like right. in, right. in Australia, where they're where they're decimating the kangaroos. Mm. Yeah, well, the, the, the Black Mambas Anti-Poaching Unit and their sister organization called the Bush Babies Environmental Education Program that Jeff had talked about really change communities and not only reduce poaching, but they change those communities. Uh, and um, they are in an approach that should be replicated everywhere and could easily be replicated everywhere, right? The, the women that, that are hired to be a mamba um, 
are usually hired from families and communities where no one in the family has a job. Like the people who apply, young women who apply who don't have um, a family who, who has an income, which is sadly super common in this area. Mm-hmm. Unemployment for young men, which is what's tracked, not so much young women, is around 70% in this area. 70%, wow. right? Three wow. or four people, more or less, don't have jobs. Right. So if you employ this young woman, she has an income, she has a family that she's caring for, it's going to benefit her neighbors. So you're, you're, it's, a, it's an investment in the community directly, financially, right? Sure. That is going to change people's minds about conservation because they know that they're benefiting. If there's right. also the education program that has been we have, we have found in our, in our uh, five years of research to be equally as important, if not more so, in really changing the hearts and minds of the communities against poaching. Um, if you bring that education component in with the, the unarmed anti-poaching unit, it's a win. It is a massive win, and it's a huge opportunity. And plus, something that, that was the original or, or, uh, inspiration for the project, for the, for the Black Mambas, um, is that uh, very often in, in these kinds of anti-poaching units, there is a, an arms race, right? We get a bigger yep. gun, then they get right. more or bigger guns. And then we yep. have to scale up, and then they have to scale up. And better technology, and higher technology, and greater lethality, and all this stuff, right? So there's this escalation, escalation, escalation. So more and more people die. More poachers, or people who are illegal, I don't like the term poachers, more illegal hunters and more rangers who are trying to stop it. Mm-hmm. We don't want that. Nobody wants that, right? So what we want to be able to do is to sort of de-escalate. Let's step down. So the unarmed nature of the of the mambas is really a benefit, a huge benefit, sure. because people know that Balule is super well preserved, super well patrolled and protected, but that the women are unarmed. Right. And so that that's not a small thing that the women part of it. Right. right. Because uh, the the Mambas being women, uh, I, as I like to say, I don't I don't know that they like to say this or they like it when I say this, but <laughs> I like to say that that women have weaponized sexism against the sexists, you know, mm-hmm. because men don't like to have a woman in fatigues, which they all dress in fatigues which mm-hmm. is not, not done in that area. They look amazing. They are, they are very confident. They are very well-trained. They are very educated young women. Um, and men don't want to have a woman who looks like that wagging the finger at them. Sure. You know, that wagging sure. the finger, it has greater lethality <laughs> against the male ego yeah. than does a bullet, you know? Well, yeah, yeah, because you, you figure if, if the alternative was here, here I am with a bulletproof vest on and a, and a fully auto weapon and I and I stumble onto them, their reaction is going to be fight or flight. And if it's fight, people are going to get killed. Right. So it really, and, and the, the other ripple effect of, of the Mambas that I see is it's a plan that sticks because it roots, Mm. it puts roots down in the community, but it's not just this big entity from out of town coming in to save the day and taking the glory and saying, we saved, we saved this area until they, Turn their turn their backs and go the other way, and, and the crime comes right back. It sticks, and and should absolutely be replicated and and uh, scaled. Um, well put, Jeff. So, and then the bush babies. Uh, real quick, I wanted to talk yeah. about that. Um, yeah. So, some of what um, Val with with the Mambas had shared with me, some of the videos of of the Mambas talking to the babies and and all this are just 
I mean, it, it's as heartfelt a moment as you can get. And it's as real and raw and, and you know, part of the earth as, as it can be. It, it is, um, it's amazing to see. And if, if anybody can uh, take a minute and jump onto the Black Mambas website and, and look at what they're doing um, beyond the, the patrol and pulling up the snares and doing all that, uh, just absolutely amazing work. Um, That's true. But, yeah. And, you know, people often say education doesn't make a difference. Mm, you know, if, yeah. we, if we want to make a difference, we should be out there with guns and shooting the poachers. Right. Those are people who like to hold guns and, uh, you know, there, there's yeah. reasons for that. It's yeah. Education yeah. is, is everything. It's true, Erica. I, I think, like you say, I think there is a place for guns and there, there is a place even in the Mamba system, sure. um, the, in the, in Balule where they preserve, where they're, where they're uh, patrolling, they're, they're unarmed, but there is a separate group that is armed that is in the area, but the frontline people are not. Yeah. And that's right. who are really going to be going to be interacting with the public, right? The, the illegal hunters. Um, so you have your backup, but they don't have to be, they're not the ones doing the patrol. They're not the ones doing the surveys. They're not the ones working with the communities. And it's a good thing because they're not going to be well supported by the communities sure. if they're armed. If they're unarmed and they're just, they're providing the service of patrolling and also the education that they provide to the kids because they work in, uh, in four different communities now in a, a crazy number of schools. Uh, they, they're changing the communities by through that education process and you know change educating kids changes communities and sure. aren't, aren't they recruiting new uh young women from the schools for new black mambas uh, they're recruiting uh, in some cases usually they come from the communities in which the, the bush babies are found uh, are, are happening right so they're they're trying to more closely couple this was a, a consequence of our of our evaluation that we did in 2018 um that, that we found that the communities that were most supportive of conservation were those that had the bush babies program in it as well um mm -hmm. and so they are changing their model to recruit from communities where they have bush babies programs so now there's a tight wedding of those two programs the mambas and the bush babies Okay. It's an amazing model, like like you were saying, Erica, and you were saying too, Jeff, that that should be replicated around the world. It's not more expensive than having armed people out everywhere. Sure. You know, you can reduce the number of armed people out there. You can reduce that that arms escalation. You can build connections with community, uh, and that's how we're really going to save species. You know, in most places. Right. You know, where yep. there's wars on, that's a different story, of course. But in most places around the world, the Mamba program would work. Now, speaking of that, because we're, we're probably getting close to running out of time here, but yeah. uh, bringing it back to the, the United States. So when Eric and I talked about uh, starting this podcast, one of the things, very important things we wanted to focus on uh, was the fact that uh, you could pretty much throw a dart at, at anywhere on the planet. Um, and I could rattle off a list of animals and plants that are in trouble there. Now, right. we wanted to make a focus on uh, animals in North America that, that are in, uh, in a crisis situation and uh, start to highlight um, some, some different programs that are out there and projects that are out there to help them. Now, obviously, we won't be able to go down the rabbit hole on all of those today, but uh, <laughs> you, you are involved in, in quite a few of those, uh, specifically in the southwest part of the states. Uh, where, where you and I are both located. Um, and obviously we're gonna, we're gonna have to have another podcast uh, 
with you on again so we can we can start talking about those but um is it is it safe to say that sadly safe to say that that's kind of a a, a fair statement that you could pick any point in the u.s and and find uh not only animals that are in trouble but ways for people that are in that area to help absolutely right jeff yeah, it's, it's a really insightful uh, observation on your all's part that that's the case, because it really is true anywhere, Ken, especially where uh, where there's a lot of humans, <laughs> because we're having the effect locally as well. You know, right. outside my window here in the Coachella Valley in Southern California, uh, there's land clearing, there's new buildings coming in. People need houses, people need affordable housing, people need to be able to have places to live, but we can do it in ways that uh, that set up boundaries within which development can happen and conservation can happen, you know, sure. and we here sure. in the, in the Coachella Valley have one of the very first uh, plans that have made that happen of, of which I'm very proud. I had nothing to do with it. So this is not <laughs> my own horn, but uh, something I'm really proud of my colleagues who did it, which is the Coachella Valley multiple species habitat conservation plan. Right? Sounds awesome. It's a huge long name. CVMSHCP is what it what the word is, uh, and the CVMSHCP uh, has set aside areas that are going to be developed. Right, this was done twenty years ago, twenty years ago, and we know where there's going to be development. We know where there's not going to be development, and we know where there are kind of mixtures of the two, right? So uh, in areas where there's going to be development, there's a fast track process for us to go in and do what's called a salvage process, where we go in and we rescue the, especially endangered wildlife, but we'll take anybody who's there because we want to <laughs> save all the lives, you know? Uh, so the Coachella Valley fringe toad lizard, which is only found in our valley, high priority species, desert iguanas, chuckwallas, neither of which are listed, but both of which are super cool and we encounter them a lot. You know, mm -hmm. any, any animal that we can find in areas that are slated for development before the development yeah. happens, we will go in and we will rescue those organizations, those organisms, and then as much as possible, release them back out into the wild. Wow. So that they, you know, because there are some that if you release uh, nearby where they are from, they will head right back to it. And then they'll get run over across roads. So. Sure. You know, we have to come up with ways to be able to to protect them from um, their homing instinct at times, right. you know, but I want to give them a chance anyway. You know, if they're in yeah. an area where it's going to be bulldozed, they don't have a chance. Right. So we need to make that happen. That's uh, that's such great work. James, I admire your work so much. I'm such a huge fan. Thank you for, for what you. you do. Um, and to your point of how conservation is uh something that we all need to be a part of and mm. that's how we can all make that's how a difference can be made if we're all in on it and yes. uh, we can all do this together you know i like you and so many others i'm passionate about making a difference every day which is why i chose to do this podcast and um i'm proud to be doing it with with people like you and jeff and uh mm you know, making a difference in the world, even on a volunteer basis, people can do this, the, you know, large things, small things, just as simple as walking down the street and seeing garbage laying on the ground, pick it up, throw it in the trash receptacle for someone else to see that and see, Hey, there is a better way to do things. Right. And, um, you know, I, I care deeply about how I, how I run my life and try to be a conscientious model for my children so that they can then become good stewards on this planet and you know show their friends and show 
And we all become way showers for how to do it a better way. And those small things add up when we all do it together collectively. Right. And um, I don't think that's too idealistic. I think that it is a possibility and we can all make a difference. So uh, thank you. Thank you yes. so much. And yes. listeners, um, thank you all for joining us here today. We are uh, coming to the close of our show, but please everyone check out Dr. James Danoffberg's bio and links from our Wildlife Guardians profile page on the All About Animals Radio website at www.allaboutanimalsradio.com. You can find out more about James's inspiring work through the living desert at www.livingdesert.org. And please everyone support our planet every single day and today. Yes. James, thank you so much for being here today, taking time out of your obviously extremely busy schedule. <laughs> so grateful. And it's been an honor to have you here and a pleasure speaking with you. And I look forward to connecting with you again. I really hope, and I'm, I'm not even going to say it. I'm just going to say, I'll see you later because I know you're going to be on again. Um, yeah. So thank yeah. you again. Yeah. And we, we have a lot more to, we have a lot more to talk about. <laughs> we do. Yeah. It's yeah. a real pleasure. And thank you all for doing what you're doing too. This is really important work. Thank you, James. Thank you, everybody. Right. And we'll see you again next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Through raising awareness, education, and compassion, we hope to bridge the gap between species in need, conservation organizations that are making an impactful change for our world, and like-minded supporters who use their voice to advocate for wildlife. To learn more, please visit allaboutanimalsradio.com and pedalingagainstpoaching.com. Also like to give a huge shout out and thank you to Michael Wilbur of the band Moon Hooch for the theme music. Check them out at moonhooch.com.